I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. When big development comes to a neighborhood, how do the neighbors benefit? It's a thorny question that communities are trying to address with all sorts of new legal, financial, and taxing mechanisms. And one such mechanism is community benefits agreements. Dr. Ralph Rosado is an expert on the subject, particularly when community benefits agreements are used for affordable housing and neighborhood revitalization. He has a forthcoming book on the subject to be published by Penn Press. Ralph, congratulations on receiving your doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. Your dissertation was on community benefits agreements. Sounds kind of wonky, but (laughs) explain what that means. Yeah, thank you so much for, for inviting me, Carol, and thanks on the congratulations as well. But essentially, um, CBAs, or Community Benefits Agreements, are agreements that uh, neighborhood and other kinds of community groups enter into with developers um, in relationship to a large real estate projects. Um, and I'll give you sort of a little bit of a preface so that they make sense in, in historical context. Uh, so in the 50s and 60s, as we know, it was the uh, era of urban renewal. And so we had lots of very large, uh, pretty intrusive government projects that came in and, and folks were displaced. And some of them were, were fantastic projects from a, a, a public sense in, the, in terms of the kinds of amenities that they were able to offer. But nonetheless, they were really disruptive to a number of neighborhoods across the country. So you fast forward uh, a couple of decades and you see that government has become more responsive to communities and they're allowing more public input. But nonetheless, you, you see a number of large projects that are coming in that are still very disruptive, where uh, opportunities for the public to get involved and really have their say are pretty limited in, in many places. Um, and you're just seeing uh, projects come in that uh, you know, are bringing in a lot of traffic and some drunk drivers and still displacing folks. So CBAs have been away in the past uh, less than 20 years, a little over 15, to allow um, communities and neighborhood groups um, to have more of a voice in the kinds of projects that they're going to be surrounded by. And so they've, these groups have, uh, in certain cities have gotten sophisticated enough that they're in, entering into, into these agreements directly with the developers, or they're laying out very sort of specific demands for governments to say, hey, we need you to make these requests. So uh, there have been approximately 50 uh, in the country adopted since the late 90s. Um, and some of them are better than others in, in some pretty critical ways. But it's certainly been a very uh, rich topic. And uh, uh, one thing I definitely wanted to contrast them with is that these are not about NIMBYs. So these are not folks saying, oh, we hate that project altogether. Let's block that. These are folks saying, we're okay with a version of the project that you're proposing and we'll support it if you make certain concessions. Um, in terms of the, the kinds of concessions that are, are likely to come up, uh, many of the projects, so you know, you're seeing CBAs in cities in California and New York predominantly, but in lots of other states, but you're seeing certain themes come up again and again. And so groups are making requests for things like uh, local hiring. So if you, you know, you're going to build this project in my backyard, um, it would be you know, sort of key to our neighborhood if you actually hired people from the neighborhood since we're going to be uh, feeling the physical impact of the project. Um, folks also are making uh, commonly requests for uh, living wages. So, you know, you're going to be getting some subsidies from the government. In exchange, we think you should pay higher than just minimum wage. Um, and then there have been a number of other things that have come up again and again, such as uh, requests for affordable housing or requests for park space. Uh, we've seen uh, where they, um, you know, request that the developer work on an ongoing basis with neighborhood groups in terms of apprenticeships, tutoring for kids, you know, really a series of things that change 
the physical footprint of the project as well as the other kinds of uh, impacts that it has on a neighborhood. Ralph, who typically negotiates a CBA, a Community Benefits Agreement, with the developer? If it's, uh, In other words, who negotiates on behalf of the neighborhood? That's a fantastic question, uh, and it's certainly something I address in, in the book. Um, so the first one that, that really drew a lot of attention was one in 1998 in Los Angeles where you had a, a large project, and it's, it's Hi- uh, Hollywood and Highland, which is where the Oscars are filmed, and it's a very large retail project, and the developer was requesting tens of millions of dollars in subsidies. The project is well over a million square feet. I mean, it's, it's a big project that takes up several blocks of land. Um, so it's, it's been a very good project in the sense of it's really helped to revitalize that area, and a number of other private projects have come in as a, re- as a result. Um, so that being said, when the project was first proposed, there were a series of organizations that were both very neighborhood-based and also um, interest-based. So um, groups that were interested in environmental causes, groups involved in housing causes, uh, social justice organizations, labor unions, sort of a range of groups. Um, And there were a couple dozen that got involved and, and approached the district council member for that area and said, you know, we're willing to support this project, but only if they make the following modifications. So in this particular case, the council member was uh, very much in agreement with what the groups are requesting, and uh, the city of Los Angeles entered into a development agreement with the developer that specifically asked for essentially everything that those groups had come forward and and asked for. Um, So I think what happened after that is sort of being very emboldened by, by having that sense of authority. The groups decided, you know, we're fortunate in that this particular district uh, elected official is very supportive of our causes and our requests, but what about other projects in the future? What if she leaves? What about in other cities, other neighborhoods where maybe the district official is not as supportive? We need to go ahead and sort of kick it up a level and start negotiating directly with developers. So this really changed the, the, the paradigm for this, um, and it's much more of a complex undertaking when you have a series of nonprofits saying, hey, we have our own attorneys on staff, We'll let the city know that we're doing this, but we're going to bypass them. So they, they started to bypass after that. They bypassed the government, and they said, we're sophisticated enough that we can enter into these contracts. So they're actually contracts that you can uh, pull down that are online where it's the signatories are the developer and uh, neighborhood groups and not the government itself. And that's what you saw starting to happen over and over in Los Angeles and, and New York and a few other cities uh, where there's a lot of market interest and the groups have that kind of in-house sophistication and they worked as coalitions. That's also the big key here. In some cities, they work as coalitions where everybody is very upfront, like my group cares about these issues and we don't necessarily care that much about your issues, but we'll mutually support each other, right? Um, In some places, you have groups go individually to developers and say, if you give us this, we're not interested in what anybody else wants, we'll take a check. And that's problematic. There are cases where some of these are more legitimate, accountable, fair than others. Uh, A lot of the groups I've spoken with over the years have said, we will never personally take a check because then it looks like we're, we're being bought off. And, you know, that raises questions. So even if their cause is really good and you think, well, they're already fundraising for their cause, their cause is legitimate, them taking a check from a developer really raises a lot of serious uh, questions. So I'm much more supportive of the groups that were very upfront, open, transparent, held public meetings, brought everybody in and said, these are the kinds of things overall we're looking for for our neighborhood versus some of these others. I'm curious, you, you've mentioned Los Angeles, you've mentioned New York. Both of those would be considered fast growth markets. Absolutely. 
It's one thing to negotiate with a developer when you are in a fast growth market and and land is is in demand and developers want to develop there at a at a, a rich price, shall we say, and that rich price might include community benefits. But what about in slow growth markets? Uh, are they even relevant in slow growth markets? So actually, what I what I did um, at the request of, of the committee that was helping me work on this is I looked at a range of places, right? So they're happening in, happening in California and New York more than anywhere else. So I looked at those places. Even within California, though, you'll have high growth communities and low growth communities. Within LA, where these have uh, taken place more than anywhere else, you have some projects that never quite got off the ground because that particular block, that particular neighborhood, didn't have the same kind of market interest that uh, somewhere like Hollywood and Highland or Hollywood and Vine, which are very you know iconic locations, have. Um, I, I looked at uh, Syracuse in New York, right? So CBAs are, are happening quite a bit in New York City. New York City is a hot place for the most part. Um, but Syracuse, which is also in New York, not such a hot place. I looked at Milwaukee, which is not a high growth location. And then I, I added in Miami, which is a high growth location where you're not seeing these agreements. So I had sort of a nice way to contrast these places with very different uh, market dynamics and governmental dynamics and civic dynamics. Um, in the places where... You don't have as much market interest as, as others. It's kind of like that child's riddle, like, how do you do this? And the answer is always, you know, punchline is very carefully. Well, in the slow growth places, you do these things very carefully. Um, in Milwaukee, they have a freeway that was running straight through downtown. So essentially what you would expect to be the densest, most prominent location in Milwaukee, uh, the mayor, who was at the time, it was John Nolan, who went on to be the, the head of the Congress for the New Urbanism, um, he, he said, you know, let's go ahead and demolish this freeway. We, we don't need this. It's killing development in the area. Let's create surface roads and, and get rid of all this other stuff and open up the land for development. It being Milwaukee, they, there were groups that were interested in getting a CBA adopted. Um, the land under which the freeway was located, part of it was uh, under city jurisdiction and part of it was under county jurisdiction. The city did not adopt putting in any sort of community benefits uh, stipulations in, in the redevelopment of the land. The county did. Both, you know, in going over there to Milwaukee and interviewing folks, it's it's taken a long time for the pro- any projects there to get off. So this, this has been going on for over a decade. You are now starting to see shovels in the ground as in the of the last year. What we're seeing is um, some folks think that it took over a decade because some requirements were put into place for local hiring and some of these other things. And a good number of other folks have said, it's not because of that, it's because it's Milwaukee and we're losing population and there's not as much interest as we were hoping. So, it, it, you know, it's sort of debatable in slow growth places. There, in some of those places that are slower growth, we've also seen that the projects just don't, don't move forward because the developer walks away and invests somewhere else. And it, you know, it begs the question of, did it have anything to do with the benefits or is it just because the place itself is not somewhere that folks are moving into? Ralph, can you help me understand the difference between the impact of a community benefits agreement and some of the other uh, tools that are used to incentivize development and benefit communities at the same time? So essentially uh, local governments and state governments have uh, two major things that they can do that try to incentivize development. Um, They've got two things in their disposal. The first one is money and the second one is, is power. I mean, quite candidly, when I say money, I'm talking about subsidies. So there's plenty of projects, including the the ones I studied, where a lot of money was put in by the local government, either in the form of 
actual money being put in or infrastructure being paid for or transit stations being developed right in front of the project so folks could get off right away. Um, there were uh, a number of instances where there was eminent domain used and so land was given to somebody or land was leased um, under uh, like a transit authority, for example, that owns land where there are stations coming through and you give somebody a lease to develop around it or above it or below it. So there are lots of things that cost money that governments can do to incentivize development. They also have certain powers. So apart from eminent domain, which I mentioned, they also have the ability to rezone a property. So there are some cases where what was allowed originally on the site was maybe single-family homes or small multifamily projects, and instead um, the, the the government was able to say, you know what, we'll allow something much larger than was originally allowed, and you create value in a project that way, um, or you uh, you know allow uh, higher buildings, greater density, those sorts of regulatory things that they have at their disposal. What community benefits do is they say we're okay with those, but we want to put in some checks and balances. Um, because unfortunately, a lot of economic development in the country is not really monitored, right? So somebody can get subsidies for a project. We don't know if it really paid off dollar for dollar or if the government was better off doing something else with that money. Um, so uh, community benefits essentially say we're okay with those things, but we're going to put in a series of other conditions and checks and balances into place so that the project is better for the immediate neighborhood and better for the, the city and the county overall. And you compare that to, let's say, a tax increment financing agreement. Is that a situation in form of a TIF that the city simply bets on increased real estate value, not only in the project, but the surrounding area, and is saying we're willing to take that increment of value you're creating and reinvest it uh, on your behalf in the infrastructure or something related to the project? Absolutely. That's exactly what they're doing is that they're taking a sort of calculated risk that if they make certain kinds of investments using the TIF dollars, putting in, for example, water and sewer infrastructure, um, that that will help to support larger kinds of businesses, bigger buildings. So everything is really a calculated risk. The The pros of doing any of these things, uh, providing subsidies or, you know, reduced price land or rezoning a property, sort of the, the pros of these things when they do work is that they can really help to spur redevelopment. And so several of the projects that have been associated with community benefits agreements are projects that have been transformative. So the projects have succeeded, they've met all their requirements, and you're, you've seen in the immediate surrounding new private projects come up that didn't request anywhere near the level of subsidy that the first one did. So in that sense, uh, doing any of these things can really help to play, turn a place around, uh, you know, a struggling neighborhood that's been neglected for a long time or even a, a whole city. Um, the cons to all of these things is that there's a cost to taxpayers. So if you're giving a subsidy, that is money that's coming from somewhere else. That is money that won't be devoted to something else that's important in the neighborhood or in the city. Um, and again, it is a calculated risk because the project may not pay off. Um, the other big con to a lot of these things is that they are very rarely monitored. And I think, it, and that shouldn't surprise any of us, um, even though there are a lot of big dollar magnitudes involved, you don't want to be the person that says, oh, I asked for this report on the benefits of these things, and it came back as being really, really sort of counter to what we were trying to do. So we put in $30 million, and it looks like all we'll ever get back is $5 million of new jobs or any other sort of investment. So because the answer to a lot of these things is maybe it wasn't worth it, uh, a lot of times they're not requested at all. And so that's that's where some of these community groups step in and they say, 
we want there to be greater transparency. We want to make sure that our tax dollars and those of our neighbors are being used wisely and that we really are getting a return. And if nothing else, that the neighborhood itself is respected and that we receive uh, benefits because we're bearing the brunt of the increased traffic, potentially the increase in crime and all other sorts of potential negative things that could happen as a result of development if, if not done right. On the other hand, communities, if people own in a place, mm-hmm. right, if they own their property and land values go up in the neighborhood as a result of some de- some development, then those property owners do reap some benefit, right? There are pros and cons even to that. Uh, if, if you're an owner and you're Uh, property values go up, you may end up paying higher taxes. So you may see benefits in the sense of maybe crime is down because your neighborhood becomes a hot place where people like to walk around and suddenly you feel safer and maybe there are folks investing more in the local schools and and you have more retail offerings because there's more dollars to spend. That's certainly a good thing. Uh, But in some cases, what you can find is some of these places get less affordable. So if you're not particularly affluent, this could be a, a challenge. Um, your taxes may end up going up because the value of your home has shot up. Um, many of these projects, however, are located in neighborhoods where you actually have a relatively low home ownership rate. These are renters. So these are folks very, very concerned about getting priced out. So one of the things I, I heard from a number of, of folks that are advocates for CBAs is they say, we'd like to see better neighborhoods, same neighbors. So we don't want anybody to have to move away as a result of this project. We definitely want to see the the overall neighborhood improve because we realize there's room for improvement in, in an, on a number of levels. So everything has uh, has has their pros and cons for sure. I'm surprised when you say that there are only 50 of these agreements over how long a period? So in about 15 years, they, in in part that tends to be because they're associated with large projects, right? And, and after a while, I realized what's going on is these are pretty elaborate. These are complex to undertake. Uh, many places don't have, you know, strong real estate markets where everybody's proposing a large project or there's, you know, much activity at all. Um, lots of our cities are losing population and folks are migrating to other places. Um, the other thing is really it requires pretty pretty established civic infrastructure. Um, and so the younger cities tend not to have nonprofits that have been there a long time or neighborhood associations where people have been there a long time. Um, and so they don't have the sophistication to undertake anything that takes months or in some cases years to get underway. Um, the, the groups that have been most successful and the cities that have, have, have the most CBAs to show for themselves are cities where they have relatively large nonprofits with in-house attorneys and they can devote staff to negotiating these. And that weeds out a lot of organizations. So, so you know, as I said, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with these things. Part of the, the hate part of it is they're, they're ad hoc. So there is no hey, this is what every single one should include, it really will will fluctuate depending on the size of the project. It'll fluctuate on the market in the city. It'll fluctuate in the period in the market. So during the recession, we saw no projects of this caliber moving forward, and we saw no agreements moving forward as a result. So it's they're back because the market is back, but you can see how over time these can get uh, either more popular or less popular based on a number of other things. What is the future of these public financing mechanisms and community benefit agreements, where are they headed? It's interesting. There's sort of two answers for this. I think they're going to continue to be used in in relatively few places where you do have that sort of thicker civic infrastructure in place that can put these forth and where you have projects coming in. And so I think they're going to stay 
with regards to popularity, they're going to maintain in places such as Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York City, uh, where you've got still these relatively extended boom periods um, and where you have all these very active organizations. Um, that being said, that's not the typical city. So in suburban communities, you're still not likely to see these. Um, in relation to most real estate projects, since most actually are modest in nature, you're not going to see these because you won't. there won't be the sort of benefits available because a project is too small or the other pieces aren't in place. Um, but the interesting thing that I've seen over time, because I've you know been studying these for a while now, is that Nonprofits that have been involved, you know, and I say nonprofits, I mean larger nonprofits as well as neighborhood-based groups, as well as individual neighbors and churches and other other clusters of people. They've realized that it's actually more time uh, efficient to try to negotiate policy change at the city-wide level. So they've taken the lessons that they learned from these very ad hoc situations, and they said oh, if we implement these strategies on an ongoing basis and we look for allies and we come up with things that we're mutually supportive of, maybe we can get you know, benefits requirements applied to all development above a certain threshold or to city-related projects, or we can get things to be done citywide regardless of the development climate. And so they've taken those lessons and they're applying them to a number of other things. And I think that's a trend that will continue to increase. So we're seeing essentially best practices around collaborating with others from the civic sphere to get things done. And that's pretty exciting. Ralph, thanks for being our guest on Night Cities. Thank you so much. Dr. Ralph Rosado is president of Rosado and Associates and a fellow at the Metropolitan Center at Florida International University. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at Night foundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and all of our other interviews on Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.